0: So I'm thankful to be here this evening and to be able to share God's word together with you. And um, we'll be continuing on um, in the book of First Peter. And uh, please turn with me to First Peter chapter one. And we'll begin our reading with verse 13. And as you're turning there, I just wanted to make a few comments um, to help set the stage um, to bring you back into where we are picking up our reading. So this evening we'll be beginning, or Peter is, is starting uh, a new section of his letter. Uh, verses 1 through 12 uh, were a description of, uh, a glorious description of what God has done for us, the riches of his grace that he has extended to us. And um, he touches on so many of the different realities of the work of God in our salvation, of the, the triune God in in causing us to be born again according to his mercy unto a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, to an inheritance, um, that is being kept in heaven for us and, um, that he is bringing us through that, um, into our ultimately our salvation. And, you know, he brings, um, the trials into our lives, um, to, to test our faith and to prove our faith and, um, to strengthen our faith, um, and then also the work of Christ in, um, in, everything that he has done um throughout uh history leading up to the coming of Christ that he was foretold and uh, then that that glorious um salvation that was revealed when Christ came to this earth and we have that full picture now of everything that has been uh, accomplished in that that full gospel and then when as we come to to verse 13 Peter shifts gears a little bit and starts to talk about the implications of these realities in the life of the believer, in the lives of his covenant people, and how it really manifests itself in our lives. And there are two characteristics um, that Peter points out here that define these new covenant people of God. And the first one is that of holiness and in verses 13 through 17 which we'll look at this evening the apostle Peter um talks about this um this characteristic or the mark of of his new covenant people that they are holy. And then verses 18 and on he he touches on the characteristic that they are the ransomed people of God. So we'll be splitting this section up into um Uh, these section of verses into two sections. Um, So this evening we'll be focusing on verses 13 through 17. And as we begin this new section, Peter is commanding these believers in a very practical way to live up to their calling, to live up to the calling that he talked about in these first 12 verses of of who they are in Christ. So the, the title of this evening's message is A Call to Holiness. So let's read together our text, First um, Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. It says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourself according to the former lusts of your ignorance— But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons, judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. May God bless his word. Before I would begin this sermon this evening, I'd like to um, preface it by speaking directly to those uh, who are listening tonight who don't know Jesus Christ yet, who are not Christians, who don't have a relationship with Christ, who haven't died from their sins, who haven't been born again, as um, Peter speaks about in the previous verses here. And the reason I want to speak to you this evening is because I don't want you to be confused by this message. And if I don't clarify for you um, who this message is, is directed towards and, and put it in its proper context, um, I think the result can be disastrous. And so it's critical for me and for you to understand who this is written to. And and not that there's nothing here for you to to listen to. I'm glad that you're listening to this sermon tonight, and I think this is an appropriate and a good sermon for you to hear. But at the same time, I don't want you to get the wrong message of what um, Peter is trying to get across here uh, when he gives this command, this very, very clear command, to be holy. Be holy, he says. And he's quoting from Scripture there, but... In that command, in what he's writing here, he is writing, in its proper context, he is writing to believers, and he is issuing that believe, that command to believers. And it's not that, again, I would say it's not that you are not called to holiness. I think everyone is called to holiness. God, God desires that, um, in our lives. But, for many people, and I just point something out that I think, um, is a real clear misconception with those who don't fully understand the gospel, is that many people equate the gospel to holiness or just being good. They see the book, they see the Bible as a book of morality that we are supposed to follow. And as long as we follow the rules in this book to a certain degree, then we're good. And quite frankly, that's not the gospel. And I have to clarify that point, especially to those of you who are outside of Christ, who have not been born again. Because for me to just preach this sermon, for me to just read these words and call you to be holy without first pointing you to Jesus Christ, would simply be legalism or moralism. And actually, for me to say to you who are unregenerate, be holy— I would be asking you to do something that you actually cannot do, and the scripture, um, I think, I think it's just important to, to to point that out that that you cannot be holy on your own, and I think the scripture backs that point up very clearly. The power to live a life of true holiness only comes to those who have been born again, and. I'm not saying that you can't do good things. Um, we all do good things, in a sense, um, and from a moral perspective. Um, but the power to, ch- to live a life that is truly holy only comes to those who have been born again. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, "...whoever is born of God overcometh the world." Those are the ones, those who have been born of God are those who have the power to overcome sin. And if you have not been born again, if you have not experienced the transforming power of grace in your life, then your striving for holiness is a waste of time. It's a total waste of time, and it will not amount to anything of eternal value. Because any good that you can muster up is simply just morality. It's simply striving to keep the law, and it will fall so short of the glory of God, as the scripture says. And I think of one example um, in the scriptures of, of, a, of an account that took place of, and I'm sure you, you would all remember this, of the rich man who came to Jesus, who was very confident in his own righteousness, and um, thought that he could attain the kingdom of heaven through his good deeds. And I won't read the account, but I'll just sort of recap it and make a point to it. But, you know, he comes to Jesus, and he basically says, Good Master, you know, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, right away off the bat, says to him, he says that, Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that is God. So Jesus, right away, clarifies that fact that we are all sinners, that we all fall short of the glory of God, and he, he states that to this man. But then he says, um, he, he he starts to take him through the commandments, through the law, and he asks him, you know what the law says, and and he goes through them, and the man says, all of these I have kept from my youth. Now, that is a lie. He has he's not kept all of those things from his youth, and and if he would have heard Jesus' sermon on the mount, he would have known that that it was not just the outward keeping of the law, but really um, the law is that which is in our hearts, and we all fall short of that because which of us have not told a lie, which of us have not lusted after something, which of us have not had hatred into some degree within our heart, and that alone, what, what happens in our heart is condemnation to us. So Jesus brings him through all of this, and, um, the man says, you know, I've kept all these things from my youth, and then Jesus gives him another command, and he says, you know, then, then, then if you, you know, go out and sell all that you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. And the man, we know the account, the man goes away sorrowful because this is something he can't do. He's holding on to his riches, and Jesus says to him, how rich, how hard is it for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Um. And then the disciples are are, are almost dumbfounded by this. And, and they say to Jesus, they come to him and they say, well, then who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And I think this just illustrates so clearly that our own righteousness is nothing that we can, um, that n- our own righteousness We'll, we will always fall short of the glory of God um, if we are trying to establish um, our righteousness on our own. And the power to overcome sin, the power to truly be good and holy, only comes through Jesus Christ. Through what Christ has done on the cross as we take on his righteousness upon ourselves um, and he bore our sins, and any effort towards holiness, then, as new creatures of Christ, any of our efforts towards holiness apart from Jesus Christ is simply striving for morality. It's just striving for law-keeping and ultimately is a condemnation upon ourselves. We need grace. You need grace. And you need to be born again. So that's my message to those who are outside of Christ. And I'll just lay that down right up front here um, and make that clear. But in this text that we have, um, Peter is speaking to believers, to those who have experienced the realities that Peter laid out in the first 12 verses of um, the work of the triune God in our salvation, of the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. Um, the Father who, uh, because of his, as I said before, of his abundant mercy has caused us to be born again, given us a living hope, an inheritance in heaven that, he's, <clears throat> that he has prepared for us. And the work of the Spirit in sanctifying us, in bringing us through those trials to purify our faith and to prepare us and to make us into the image of Christ. Um, and then, ultimately, Christ um, and the revelation of Jesus Christ when, you know, that was foretold by the prophets and, you know, was witnessed... witnessed And we are witnesses of the sprinkling of Christ's blood. We can look back in history and see what Christ has done on the cross and know that one day Christ will return again and will make all things new. And all of these things point to and testify to the incredible work of grace, of the grace of God and salvation. And the living hope that we have in Christ. And and it's it's a hope that changes everything. Because how could it not change everything? Everything, all all of our pursuits, all of our ambitions, all of our desires, all of our affections are transformed because of this new birth that God has given us. Everything changes, and how could we ever be the same after experiencing, truly experiencing, knowing and experiencing all the things that Peter has talked about here in these first 12 verses? And all of this demands a response, um, as we see, and as Peter makes so clear to us in this text. As he's now transitioning, in verse thirteen, he, he sort of shifts gears, and he he used that first section, um, at, you know, to set the foundation. But now he's he's carrying us on and, and describing what that actually means in our lives as believers. So it's no uh, surprise that Peter starts off um, in verse thirteen with the word therefore. Or because of all of this, or so now, be or live out who you are. That's, that's essentially what he is saying here. And I want to just take a second to emphasize the order. I've made a comment about this before, but I'll, I'll say it again. I, I think we need to make sure that we understand the flow of this book and, and, and how Peter is, is working. Um, even though this is an independent sermon, and you may be tuning in and listening, you know, have not heard any of the other messages um, that I've preached through 1 Peter so far, um, this is a standalone sermon, but it, it is still important that you understand the flow of where this um, this section of verses fits within the the, the message or the letter um, that Peter is giving here, and, and make it that connection between these previous verses. Um, Peter follows the same flow that essentially all of the, the New Testament letters or epistles um, follow. And um, I think Thomas Schreiner says it well um, in speaking about this. He says the indicative, that is what God has done in Christ, is always the basis of the imperative, that is how we should live our lives. To confuse the order would be disastrous— And the result would be works righteousness instead of seeing holiness as the result of God's grace and power, as a response to the love of God in Christ. And I think he's right there when he says that, that that to confuse the order would be disastrous. And and that's why I, I just want to press this point because i think it's critical here um because if if i were to just flip to this text of scripture and just preach a sermon and just say be holy i would be i would be missing really the, the 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 entirety of the whole scriptures and how it all fits together i would just be preaching the law to you and that's not what peter is doing here the law like i said before is condemnation by itself, it is condemnation to us, but the entirety of the gospel, the entirety of the scriptures gives us that clear picture, and I think Peter did such an, such an incredible and an excellent job of clarifying the gospel and, and our salvation and how it has come about and all of those things. He did that so well as the foundation in these first 12 verses, and we can't miss that as we go into this new section now. Peter's calling believers to live a life of holiness is not based upon ourselves, it's not based upon our own ability, but rather it is on the basis of what God has done for us in Christ. And I think that's the main point of this message. In light of what God has done for us in Christ, we are called as his new covenant people to live lives of holiness. And Peter here is giving us some very practical tools. Um, that is the, the the how we can actually do this, as well as the reason, the motivation, or the understanding of why we are to be holy. And he starts off, um, like I said in verse thirteen, he starts off with the word where wherefore. Um, but he starts really with a, a trajectory. Even before he starts to to um, build upon this theme or 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 describe for us the importance of of holiness in the life of a believer, um, he starts sort of as a launch pad um, before talking about holiness when he says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, prepare your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. And and that's kind of a strange um, speech, you, know, you read that and it's you have to think about it two or three times to understand and and um if you don't even understand what these words are it's a little bit confusing it is a figure of speech um that I think Peter is using here and some translations simply skip that and actually sort of explain the idea for example in the ESV it says prepare your minds for action that's how they translate this but the, the actual translation sort of the literal translation of what Peter is saying here is gird up the loins of your mind and I think what Peter is speaking about here, what the, the, the concept that he's he's trying to get across here, and, and to touch on, is that of our posture. Before he even talks about holiness, he's talking about first our posture, and posture is very important. Um, you know, just thinking about posture in general, and if we're, if we're about to participate in an activity, um, for, for those of you who are involved in sports or any kind of physical activity, I think you would probably understand this very well, how important posture is. So for, let's say, a baseball player, if they're, um, a batter, and they're getting ready to hit the ball, their posture is absolutely critical. They need to get ready in just the right position to before anything starts before the, the the pitch is thrown they need to be in a perfect position and ready for the action that is about to come same thing would be would apply for a hockey player let's say who's who's ready to do a face off he needs to have that right posture and i think anybody who's gone through um training in sports would understand that that's one of the fundamental things that they teach you is your posture how you're how you stand um And that's so, so important when you're about to start something and you want to start on the right foot. You need the right posture, the right position. And even another example I think of is somebody running in a race. You know, if you're about to start a race, you have to start in the right position. If you get a bad start, you're going to lose that race. Posture is critical. It's essential. And the first thing that, that Peter is doing here, I think he's speaking to um that posture that we need to have as we begin to pursue holiness. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. So um, the loins um, would be those robes. So obviously they, they dress differently than we dress today. They weren't wearing a sweater and, and jeans. They would have likely men, especially older men, would have been wearing some type of robe. And if they were doing anything that was physically demanding, Uh, Or, you know, they were about to to run or do anything that would require some some serious action They would have to pull up their robes and gird their robes That's sort of like tie them up gather them together and tie them up gird up Their robes to get ready for the action that they were that they were about to do and I think this just gives a a perfect illustration that Peter's trying to give us of what we are to do with our minds. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. And Peter is instructing us to do this with our minds, to prepare our minds, to not leave any loose ends, to keep a good grasp of our thoughts and, and of what is actually going on in our minds to get ourselves ready for the task that's ahead of us and it's so important because i think everything starts in our minds and i think peter realizes that fact it starts in our minds we we never do anything if we if we have if we're intentionally seeking to do a task or to to accomplish something it requires our minds we we never do anything without basically our mind telling us to do that thing we may not think about it very long but really you know, our actions flow out of what is going on in our minds. So when it comes to intentionally pursuing holiness, and we'll get to that a little bit in a minute here, but when it comes to pursuing holiness, I think Peter's right in in first and foremost instructing us to gird up the loins of our minds or prepare our minds for action. And, And the principle there is really this, that holiness will not become a reality in our lives without disciplined thinking. Holiness will not become a reality in our lives without disciplined thinking. Um, disciplined means it's not going to happen automatically. It requires effort. It in- requires concentration and intentionality, and it requires really a renewing of our minds. You know, our minds are what, again, what, 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 causes us to do our actions. So our minds have to be renewed. We have to gird up the loins of our minds and our minds have to be renewed and trans, in order for holiness and transformation to take place in our lives. And I think a, a great scripture that, that speaks to this and, and, and emphasizes this point so well is Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. <clears throat> it says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, And acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your minds, that ye may prove or discern what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Having a renewed mind leads to knowledge of the will of God that will ultimately transform our lives. I think that's, that's the message here. Having a renewed mind leads to a knowledge of the will of God that will ultimately transform our lives. From unholiness to holiness. And that's, that's really sanctification. That's what, that's what God desires in the life of His children. And we need humility. Um, I think, Paul emphasizes that as he goes on in the next verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he says, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, so that's having a humble mind, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. We need humility. We need a sober mindedness here. And and that's that's exactly actually where Peter goes in as he continues on in verse 13. He says, um, he, he encourages us or he tells us to think soberly. He says, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. That's clear-minded, being vigilant, um, not distracted, but focused, having, having a sober mind. And usually when we think of of being sober, we, we kind of link it with alcohol, because that's sort of the most um, I guess common situation where we would see somebody who's not sober. We, you know, they're, they're drunk. You know, it's, it's not just, soberness is not just related to, you know, our physical bodies and what we take in, but I think there is a level of, of soberness that we can have being able to think clearly in our minds. <clears throat> and I think I'll be the first to attest that there are many things in my life that distract me that cloud my vision that skew my judgment and misplace my affections all of those things can happen in my mind even though from the outside it may look that like i i have a sober mind and i'm thinking clearly all of these things can happen i can be distracted i can my vision can be clouded and my judgment can be skewed and my my affections can be misplaced but they they're all happening in my mind and you don't see me tripping and falling all over the place but It doesn't mean that's not going on inside. And I've been challenged, you know, even as I've been studying this scripture, to consider my own life and to consider those things that are affecting my sober-mindedness. And I would challenge you to to consider that as well. And I'm not going to give you a list of do's and don'ts that, oh, don't do this because that could affect your sober-mindedness. That's not what this is about. The the Word of God is sufficient um, to guide and direct you in that if you're reading His Word and, and following it but we all need to examine our own lives and ask ourselves the questions what or I'll ask you the questions what are you filling your minds with how are those things affecting your judgment your affections your spiritual clarity are they hindering you or are they helping you in your pursuit of holiness I think those are re- very real questions that, that that would challenge us in our lives and I've read this quote before, and I'll read it again just because it's it's so good. It's from Susanna Wesley. She says this, whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things. In short, whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in and of itself. And I think that's that's so true when you think, you know, these things are not wrong. They're not prohibited in scripture, but there may be things and there are things in our lives that do in fact distract us and cloud our vision and skew our judgment and misplace our affections and, and all these other things that, that I mean, she mentions here in this quote. And even an application right now is just what's going on in the world and, and everything that's taking place around us. I think a lot of us are struggling just to grapple with, um, everything that's happening and all of the information that's coming to us and then even all the opinions that are coming, you know, people's viewpoints on how things should be and, and whatnot. All of these things can really skew our sober mindedness and skew our judgment. Um, how consumed are you in these, things that are going on around us. Not that we should be oblivious or ignorant to what's going on around us, but how caught up are you in these things? And how is it affecting your judgment and your ability to think and perceive and see clearly? Are these things making you anxious or fearful? Are they making you angry or frustrated? What are those things stirring up in in yourself and and in your mind and bringing out on a daily basis? And we have to consider what is it that we're actually taking in. And we need to, I think, do what the scripture says, which is gird up the loins of our mind and be sober. And really, to me, that that comes from um, not just, you know, taking things out of our mind— so it's not that we say, okay, well, I'm just not going to allow anything to come into my mind. I'm just going to sort of close off the world and and stop everything around me. I don't think that's that's the answer. And I actually, I think I almost got caught up in that this week, as I really strived in some ways to apply this. And some of the daily routines of even taking in media, I was sort of trying to be intentional and saying, okay, I'm going to cut this off. I'm going to stop, you know, doing this. But I almost felt like I, I couldn't. It's like... There needs to be something in my mind. And then I thought of the verse in in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, it says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. And, it was, it was sobering for me and it was, it was challenging for me to consider, you know, what am I taking in? Okay. I, I can say, yeah, I'm just going to try to stop taking in those things that are, are, you know, influencing my judgment, but I have to replace those things with things that are good. That's, that's what the scripture is calling us to think on these things. And really, what is that more fundamentally than the word of God and, and of truth? I think that's what needs to shape and mold our minds and, and who we are and fill our thoughts so that we can, you know, be sober-minded and, <clears throat> and be able to set our hope fully on the gospel. And that's, that's what he says right after this. He says, in verse 13, he says, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the third thing that, that Peter says here of how we can prepare our minds, prepare ourselves for our pursuit of holiness, and that is setting our hope fully on the grace that is to come. That's the living hope that he talked about back in verse three of that, that, that future hope of the salvation and the grace that is to come when Jesus Christ returns. Um, it's that, that future salvation. There's, there's, there's three parts in, in essence, sort of, uh, three, it's, three parts to our salvation, or I call it threefold salvation. I was actually talking to um, Brother Sam Klump recently about this. Um, We were talking about how um, our salvation is past, it is present, and it is future. It's a threefold salvation. So, past in the sense that we have been saved through Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross, and our faith in that, that has saved us, yet we are being saved— So there is a, um, process of sanctification that is growing in holiness, a sanctification that is is happening in our lives and it is actually saving us. And then, ultimately, one day, and this is, this is in the future, we will be saved. We will be saved when Christ comes back. When when we are judged, when the judgment comes, and the wrath of God um, is passed over us because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we ultimately will be saved in that day of judgment. And I think this is this is actually this future salvation. That's the one that that Peter is referring to here um, when he says um, that the that hope to the end to the grace that will be brought unto you at the revelation of jesus christ he's referring to that future salvation and I, I i want you to see the gospel in this um i want my hope is that you will you will see that salvation that the gospel is not just a past event. It's not just something that happened and then we move on from that. No, the gospel is in everything. It is past. It is present. It is future. It is all there. It continues to affect every aspect of our lives. We've been saved by Christ, but then he is transforming us even now, and we see the grace of God working in our lives, and all, and we're, we're, we're hoping in the future salvation, a future grace that is to come when Christ returns throughout our lives. He's, he's doing this work, and, and ultimately we will be saved. And that is what God is doing. It, it's past, it's present, and it's future, and it's an incredible thing. And we have a new life in Christ. We have a new life in Christ, and we are children of our Heavenly Father. And that's sort of the image that, that Peter um, starts to build upon here. And he, he starts it in verse 14. It's this image of of us being um, children of God, and he is our heavenly father. He said in, um, yeah, in verse 14, he says, as obedient children. And then even further on in verse 17, he says, and if he call on the father, so he's referring to, you know, that uh, God is our father and we are his children. And just as, um, or and as God's children, we are a reflection of our Heavenly Father. We are a reflection of our Heavenly Father. Just as this world, um, God's creation, um, and, and all of its beauty reflects and it echoes the glory of God. And we can see it all around us, even as new life is, is coming. We see the trees are starting to bud and the flowers are coming out. Um, we can see the, the glory of God in this creation. And his creation echoes his glory Likewise, God's children are a reflection of their heavenly father. And I think just thinking about that even in physical sense, I think of my own children and how in many ways my own children are are a reflection of me, the reflection of who I am. And not just in the sense of resembling me in a physical way, though you can look at them and, and you can just see that they're my children. You look at a picture of me when I was a boy and you could see, yeah, my son looks just like that. Um, or, you know, and, you know, you see that the that, that children have this physical resemblance um, or reflection of me as their father. Um, but even also in their behaviors, in the way that they act, in the way that they behave themselves, in their manners, you can just look at them and see that they are my children. And I think that picture is used so well here as just God is our heavenly father and we are his children. We are a reflection of our father. And as his covenant people, it says here in verse 14, it says, as obedient children, He is taking, he is talking, Peter is talking here about those who represent their father in a way that truly pleases him, in obedience, as he says. And, you know, as a father, again, I think about my children, and I think that I care about how my children act. You know, for me, that's something that's very important, how my children act, because the way that they act says something about me as a father. So, because my children represent me. And I want to make sure that they are conducting themselves or acting in a way that represents who I am. And I think that's what Peter's getting at here when, <clears throat> when he says that we should live in a way that reflects that God is our Heavenly Father. Because who we, sorry, because how we live reflects who our Father is. How we live our lives is a reflection of who our father is. And that starts to become, I think, more important for us as we actually consider that in, yeah, how I live shows really who my who my father is. Um, if we live godless, unholy, disobedient lives, we God is not our father, because that is not who God is. If we are truly children of God, we will live in a way that reflects that reality. That we have been redeemed, as it says in verse 18, redeemed from the vain conversation and tradition of our fathers. It's talking about our, our old fathers, um, our earthly fathers or those who came before us who we once lived in and he, he calls it vain conversation, vain lifestyle that we received from them. You know, they were our fathers, but now we have a heavenly father. We have been redeemed and We once lived in that way, but now we have a new father and we live as obedient children and we do not fashion ourselves, as it says in verse 10, not fashioning ourselves according to the former lusts of our ignorance. Or in other words, not being conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. To be conformed is to be shaped, to be molded, um, to, to be... Yeah, to be conformed to the way that we once were um, in our former ignorance. It talks about here, and, and the fact that it even that it even says your former ignorance gives the implies that uh, that we have come to a level of knowledge, and that those things are now former; those things are passed away, and. That, that knowledge that we've come to, it says, it was your former ignorance, you know, that's how you once thought, but now you have the right knowledge, now you understand, and that truth calls us to respond in a different way, because we have a new father. We are the children of our Heavenly Father. And as a result, we take on his characteristics and that of holiness. And that's what he says here in verse 15. He says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. God is holy, so we are to be holy as well. As the covenant people of God... We are called to take on God's characteristic of holiness. And and Peter quotes um in the next verse, he quotes from Leviticus um, where it says where where God says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. In Leviticus eleven and, and nineteen and twenty and twenty one, he says it again and again to his people as he's as he's giving them the law and he's giving them these these standards to live by. He says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. What does it mean to be holy? I think we all are aware of that word. We've all heard that word, um, but just simple explanation. And, and I, I, I can't get, don't have time just to get deep into what it fully means in every aspect of that. But to be holy means to be set apart. Um, so for God, it means that He is set apart. He is absolutely perfect. Um, he is totally pure and upright in every way. And his holiness pervades his entire being and it shapes all of his attributes. All of who he is is shaped by his holiness, by his set-apartness, by his perfectness. So when God says to his people, be holy even as I am holy, he is likewise calling them to be set-apart Um even as he is set apart, and for for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, as his chosen people, um, he he instructs them to be distinct, to be different. He calls them out from the other nations, and he gives them his his specific regulations to live by, and and they become his his special, his separate people. And by their holiness, the nations would know that they are the people of God. That's what God had designed. So then, as we now take that image and we, we translate that into the New Testament, and Peter starts to build on this theme here of of these believers here, these exiled believers as the new covenant people of God, <clears throat> he he says, and and I think. Um, in chapter 2, verse 9, there's a verse, I think, that's probably one of the most well-known verses in First Peter. It says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar, peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As believers, this is who we are, and this is what defines us. We are God's new covenant people, we are a new holy nation, and, and, and ones who have been called out of a world of darkness and of sin, we've been called out, we've, we've been separated, and we've, and we have been called out and set apart as God's holy people to bring glory to Him. And to be holy in all manner of conversation, as it says. And conversation, that's our lifestyle. That's the way that we live our lives is to demonstrate that holiness. To live like the people of God and like the children of God. And we cannot just call him father. I mean, there are, there are many who would call God their father, but their lives don't demonstrate that he truly is their father. We must live lives that are submitted to him and demonstrate that he is in fact our heavenly father. Matthew 7:21. Jesus refers to these people. He says, "Not everyone who says unto me, 'Lord, Lord,' shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven." It's those who do the will of their fa- of of the Father of 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 God in heaven. Those are the ones who are truly his children, who are set apart and are living lives that are submitted to him and growing in holiness. <clears throat> if our lives do not show the fruit of the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience, as it says in verse 2, we are sanctif- the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience, then we have reason to question if we have truly been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, as it says in verse 2. We have reason to question. If, if we are not being sanctified unto obedience, we have reason to question whether we have truly been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And, and I, I want to ask you, as, again, as to, to direct this to you, to consider if holiness is one of the defining markers of the people of God, is it the defining marker in your life? If holiness is one of the defining markers of the people of God, Is holiness the defining marker in your life? And you can ask yourself these questions. These are introspective questions to ask yourself. Am I growing in holiness? Does my life look different than it did a year ago? In what ways, sorry, in what areas of my life is sin being put to to death? What evidence is there of God's grace working in my heart? Am I being transformed? These are questions, these are great questions to ask yourself as you consider, as you examine yourself in the light of God's word to see, am I truly growing in holiness? Is holiness something, a characteristic that defines my life? Because that is one of the marks of, the defining marks of the new covenant people of God, that of holiness. <clears throat> Can you identify specific areas of growth in, in your life and actually measure those areas so that is a year ago i would have responded in this way but god is working in my heart he is sanctifying me and now i don't respond that way anymore now i do this is there measurable growth in your life and this doesn't just come by thinking or hoping that it will even just knowing that this is something important. thats not just going to happen. This requires intentionality. It requires preparing our minds, being sober, and setting our hope. It comes from pursuing holiness, the pursuit of holiness, and a genuine desire to truly be the children of our Heavenly Father. And it's my prayer that God would give us grace to do that, um, as we would examine our lives, um, God would give us grace as his covenant people to pursue holiness and to truly be holy even as he is holy. And may God bless his word to us this evening and may it serve as an encouragement to all of us. And, um, and I would commend you to Christ. Amen.